Section 9 of the Journal of Lewis and Clark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by The Rat King. The Journal of Lewis and Clark by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Chapter 7. Indian Mode of Counting Time. Names of the Different Months. Indian Charts. Mode of Reckoning Distance. Knowledge of Arithmetic. Civil Divisions. Names of the Different Tribes. Chiefs. Democracy of Government. Hereditary Succession of the Chief. Style of Language in Debate or Speech. Young Men Not Allowed to Speak, etc. Considering their ignorance of astronomy, time is very rationally divided by the Indians. Those in the interior parts, and those I would generally be understood to speak, count their years by the winters, or, as they express themselves, by snows. Some nations among them reckon their years by moons, and make them consist of twelve synodical or lunar months, observing, when thirty moons have waned, to add a supernumerary one, which they term the lost moon, and then begin to count as before. They pay a great regard to the first appearance of every moon, and on the occasion always repeat some joyful sounds, stretching at the same time their hands toward it. Every month has with them a name expressive of its season. For instance, they call the month of March, in which their year generally begins at the first new moon, after the vernal equinox, the worm month, or moon, because at this time the worms quit their retreats in the bark of the trees, wood, etc., where they have sheltered themselves during the winter. The month of April is termed by them the month of plants, May the month of flowers, June the hot moon, July the buck moon. The reason for thus denominating these is obvious. August, the sturgeon moon, because this month they catch great numbers of that fish. September, the corn moon, because in that month they gather in their Indian corn. October, the traveling moon, as they leave at this time their villages and travel towards the place where they intend to hunt during the winter. November, the beaver moon, for in this month the beavers begin to take shelter in their houses, having laid up a sufficient store of provisions for the winter season. December, the hunting moon, because they employ this month in pursuit of their game. January, the cold moon, as it generally freezes harder and the cold is more intense in this than in any other month. February, they call the snow moon, because more snow commonly falls during this month than any other in the winter. When the moon does not shine, they say the moon is dead and some call the last three days of it the naked days. The moon's first appearance, they term, is coming to life again. They make no division of weeks, but days they count by sleeps, half days by pointing to the sun at noon, and quarters by the rising and setting of the sun, to express which in their traditions they make use of very significant hieroglyphics. The Indians are totally unskilled in geography as well as all other sciences, and yet they draw on their birch bark very exact charts or maps of the countries they are acquainted with. The latitude and longitude is only wanting to make them tolerably complete. Their sole knowledge in astronomy consists of being able to point out the pole star, by which they regulate their course when they travel in the night. They reckon the distance of places not by miles or leagues, but by a day's journey, which according to the best calculations I could make, appears to be about twenty English miles. These they also divide into halves and quarters, and will demonstrate them in their maps with great exactness by the hieroglyphics just mentioned, when they regulate in council their war parties, or their most distant hunting excursions. They have no idea of arithmetic, and though they are able to count any number, figures as well as letters appear mysterious to them, and above their comprehension. Every separate body of Indians is divided into bands or tribes, 
which band or tribe forms a little community with the nation to which it belongs. As the nation has some particular symbol by which it is distinguished from others, so each tribe has a badge from which it is denominated, as that of the eagle, the panther, the tiger, the buffalo, etc. One band is represented by a snake, another by a tortoise, a third a squirrel, a fourth a wolf, and a fifth a buffalo. Throughout every nation they particularize themselves in the same manner, and the meanest person among them will remember his lineal descent and distinguish himself by his respective family. Did not many circumstances tend to confute the supposition, I should be almost induced to conclude from the distinction of tribes and the particular attachment of the Indians to them that they derive their origin, as some have asserted, from the Israelites. Besides this, every nation distinguishes itself by the manner of constructing its tents or huts. And so well versed are all Indians in this distinction, that though they appear to be no difference on the nicest observations made by an American, yet they will immediately discover, from the position of a pole left in the ground, what nation has encamped on the spot many months before. Every band has a chief who is termed the Great Chief, or Chief Warrior, and of his approved valor to direct their military operations, and to regulate all concerns belonging to that department. But this chief is not considered as the head of state. Besides the great warrior who is elected for his warlike qualifications, there is another who enjoys a preeminence as his hereditary right, and has the more immediate management of their civil affairs. This chief might, with great propriety, be denominated their sachem, whose assent is necessary in all conveyances and treaties, to which he affixes the mark of the tribe or nation. Though these two are considered as the heads of the band, and the latter is usually denominated their king, yet the Indians are sensible of neither civil nor military subordination, as every one of them entertains a high opinion of his consequence, and is extremely tenacious of his liberty. All injunctions that carry with them the appearance of a positive command are instantly rejected with scorn. On this account, it is seldom that their leaders are so indiscreet as to give out any of their orders in a preemptory style. A bare hint from a chief that he thinks such a thing necessary to be done instantly arouses an emulation among the inferior ranks, and it is immediately executed with great alacrity. By this method, the disgustful part of the command is evaded, and an authority that falls little short of absolute sway instituted in its room. Among the Indians, no visible form of government is established. They allow of no such distinction as magistrate and subject, everyone appearing to enjoy an independence that cannot be controlled. The object of government among them is rather foreign than domestic, for their attentions seem more be employed in preserving such a union among members of their tribes as will enable them to watch the motion of their enemies, and act against them in concert and vigor, than to maintain interior order by any public regulations. If a scheme that appears to be of service to the community is proposed by the chief, every one is at liberty to choose whether he will assist in carrying it on, for they have no compulsory laws that lay them under any restrictions. If violence is committed, or blood is shed, the right of revenging these misdemeanors is left to the family of the injured. The chiefs assume neither the power of inflicting or moderating the punishment. Some nations, where the dignity is hereditary, limit the succession to the female line. On the death of a chief, his sister's son sometimes succeeds him in preference to his own son, and if he happens to have no sister, the nearest female relation assumes the dignity. This accounts for a woman being at the head of the Winnebago nation, which, before I was acquainted with their laws, appeared strange to me. Each family has a right to appoint one of its chiefs to be an assistant chief, and without whose consent nothing of a public nature can be carried into execution. These are generally chosen for their ability in speaking, and such only are permitted to make orations in their councils and general assemblies. 
In this body, with the hereditary chief at its head, the supreme authority appears to be lodged, as by its determination every transaction relative to their hunting, to their making war or peace, and to all their public concerns are regulated. Next to these, the body of warriors, which comprehends all that are able to bear arms, hold their rank. This division has sometimes at its head a chief of the nation, if he has signalized himself by any renowned action, if not, some chief that has rendered himself famous. In their councils, which are held by the foregoing members, every affair of consequence is debated, and no enterprise of the least moment undertaken, unless it there meets with general approbation of the chiefs. They commonly assemble in a hunt or tent appropriated for this purpose, and being seated in a circle on the ground, the eldest chief rises and makes a speech. When he has concluded, another gets up, and thus they speak, if necessary, by turns. On this occasion, their language is nervous, and their manner of expression emphatical. Their style is adorned with images, comparisons, and strong metaphors, and is equal in allegories to that of any of the Eastern nations. In all their said speeches, they express themselves with much vehemence, but in common discourse according to our usual method of speech. The young men are suffered to be present at the councils, though they are not allowed to make a speech till they are regularly admitted. They, however, listen with great attention, and show that they both understand and approve of the resolutions taken by the assembled chiefs. They frequently exclaim, that is right, that is good. The customary mode among all ranks of expressing their assent, and which they repeat at the end of almost every period, is by uttering a kind of forcible aspiration, which seems like a union of the letters O-A-B. End of section 9. Recording by The Rat King in Medicine Hat, Alberta.